0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. All that to say, we're about to jump into Ephesians 5. And we're looking at verses 3 through 14 today, but I want to start with verse 1. And I'm going to read through Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14, and we're encouraging you just to bring your Bibles. As disciples of Jesus, this is our essential. We have one tool that God has given us that is the authorized way that he speaks to us. So everything is filtered through this grid. So we encourage you to bring your scripture to follow along and to get to know Jesus through this. So I'm going to read 5, 1 through 14. Starting with verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness. "...nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, how are we to relate to the world around us? The last few weeks we've been talking, we've been learning through Paul what does it look like to relate to one another as a church? If Christ has done the heavy lifting and at a spiritual level has united us together in Him, what does it look like for us to now begin to act as though, by faith, as though we are united together in Christ? So Paul's been dealing specifically with how do we interact with one another? How do we treat one another? And now he shifts a little bit and he's going to talk about how do we interact with the world around us? How do we interact with people outside of the church? How do we interact with people who don't know Jesus and at this stage in their life aren't interested in following and knowing Jesus? How is a Christian supposed to act around that community of people? And frankly, the church has screwed this up in a lot of ways. We've not done this very well, and we've We were kind of on the ditch on one side of the road and we swerved to try to overcorrect and we went into the ditch on the other side of the road. And on one side of the road, there is this idea that when you become a Christian, you have to get rid of all your friends who aren't believers and you have to get rid of everything that isn't like Christian. So I was uh, walking with a, a gentleman in Cleveland on his spiritual journey one time and he had just become a Christian and committed his life to the Lord and the second time we met he was so excited he came in and told me I just threw out all of my vinyl records I got rid of all of my vinyl records and I'm so pumped about it and I was like oh man you had Cat Stevens you had Willie Nelson Oh, you are always on my mind. Don't even give me started. I love, but you can't, that's okay. Okay, awesome. Good job. That, I mean, I, that's, a, that's an act of, I know that came from a place of pure worship and wanting to please God. That's awesome. Good job. I wish you would have given them to me. Then I could have sorted through them and told you which ones to get rid of and I would have kept the, But so we kind of sometimes overreact, and that's actually a common thing when people become Christian. You hear a lot of times, people, I threw out all my, it used to be CDs, I don't know how you do it now with like Spotify and stuff, but it used to be, I threw out all my non-Christian CDs, like, oh, that's like the first thing people do for some reason, or it used to be the first thing people do. But what do you do? How are you supposed to be different than the world around you when you become a Christ follower? I mean, if you're a teenager, how do you act around other teenagers in your schools that aren't believers and aren't interested in things of God? I think it's weird to follow Jesus. That's a real question, and that's really difficult. But we also tend to make a mistake on the other end of the spectrum. And there's another crowd of Christians, and I would say that this is what we need to be more careful of here. There's another crowd of Christians that... Don't think you should act different at all from the rest of the world, you know, for the sake of relating to them. And for the, you know, Paul was all things to all people, so we should be all things to all, all people too. There's a crowd of Christians that, you know, we want people to think that Jesus is cool too. Like, we're vouching for, like he's cool too, Yeah, he partied, he had a good time, like he, he was, I mean, he didn't get drunk and stuff like that but he i mean he was with people and he had a good time and we we desperately want people to think that jesus is cool and the problem is people see right through that people can tell when you're not cool and you're trying to be cool trust me like there's uh when i was um working in columbus and this is kind of a, for me a picture of what happens when churches try to do this. When I was working in Columbus as a graphic designer, I was right right out of college, and so I was still cool. I'm not cool anymore, and I try to be cool sometimes, and people see right through it, but it was just after college, so I was still kinda cool. And I was a graphic designer, and we had this client from Longaberger, which is this basket-making company, and it's still around, actually. I thought they were done, but they're still around. And they were really fancy, they were a really big company, really respected at the time in the Hilliard area. And so we had this representative come to, come to where I was working and meet with me and my boss and a couple other designers. And um, he was wearing business casual. He spoke very, you know, very soberly and he was very serious. And then our boss was like, I'm going to send Grimmy out and a couple of these other young guys out there to help you out and kind of get a vision for what you want for this place. We were doing work for him. So he's like, okay, good. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. So we went out and met this, went out to this place. It's this giant basket, if you've ever been there. Langerberger, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be this giant basket was the headquarters. And we were like, this is weird. We walked in there, and the guy came and met us. He had this weird, he was trying to wear young clothes. He was trying to talk really young. He was yeah, using slang and like hitting us and stuff, kind of like what I do. Like, and he was very exuberant, and we're just like, are you trying to relate to us, dude? we got work to do. Let's just get the work done. Like, you don't have to be cool. It's all right. We're going to work for you. And I think that's sometimes how people feel about the church. Like, The world doesn't care if Jesus is cool or not. And we sometimes want to change him so that he appears to be something that he isn't. What they want is something solid and real. They don't want him to be an imitation of the latest trend. So that's the other things that we tend to do when we want to relate to people outside of the church, which I think is unhelpful. When we're walking with the Lord, we live by a different ethic. And in verse three through five he starts paul starts to tell us here are some ways that you're different than the world around you and so he says in verse three sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you and he says you you shouldn't even joke about it It's not funny. It's not something to joke about. This is an area where you have to be disciples of Jesus. cannot be like the rest of the world in this area. This is one of many areas. This is just one that Paul is zeroing in on. John Piper makes an argument in this passage specifically that Paul is talking particularly about premarital sex. And he gives some pretty good reasons for it. And I think he probably is right. If we look at the broad sexual ethic of Scripture, it can be summed up by saying that we were designed to marry a person of the opposite gender and stay with them in that commitment for life. And within that monogamous male-female lifetime commitment to one another that is the place in which we can enjoy this most intimate type of relating to another person that's scripture's sexual ethic but in this case it's just premarital I think he's just talking about premarital sex now why is that important why is Paul talking specifically about that because the only safe context in which sex is meant to be enjoyed is with someone who has committed themselves to you in every area for the rest of your life and for the rest of theirs. Someone who has demonstrated that commitment to you in an official, sanctioned way. Yes, even sanctioned by the state, I believe. Like some people say, well, we're, we're I mean, spiritually mentored, but we're not, you know, technically mentored by the state yet, but who cares what the state says? Well, I think probably God does actually care about that because that's one of the ways that we're a witness to the world around us. When you marry someone, you're saying, I permanently commit myself to you. My emotions, my possessions, everything that I am, everything that I have, I commit it wholeheartedly to you for life. I'm never going anywhere. You're safe. I commit my finances to you. I say this often in premarital counseling uh, as we get closer to the wedding day when we're talking about finances. The person that you're sitting next to in just a few weeks has legal rights to all of your finances. Are you okay with that? That's the context in which it's safe and good and right to enjoy this intimate type of relating. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Kenneth West in his book Word Studies in the Greek New Testament says what he's implying here, what Paul's implying here, People giving hollow advice without any substance to it. Advice that is specifically intended to make you relax in your convictions about sin. So it's someone—it's you having a conviction about sin, which is what the Spirit does. And you should always have a conviction that's on the back burner that he's working on in your life. If, if you don't, then you need to make space for him to communicate. Because it means you're perfect if you don't have something that he's working on you with. But it would be like someone saying, You need to relax about that. I mean, it's okay. Have, you know, it's not a big deal. You can partake. You're you're allowed going a little bit further. It's not a big deal. That's empty, hollow advice that's not grounded in truth. And so it would be wise and it might be helpful to see what Jesus thinks about people who give advice that loosens our moral convictions and causes us to question our moral convictions. Let's see what Jesus says about that. If you want to, you can put your finger in this section of the Bible and go back a little bit to Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Because Jesus has some thoughts on this as well. And he said to his disciples... Luke 17, 1 and 2. Temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, you don't need any help being tempted to sin. Nobody needs help with that. It's going to happen. Jesus guaranteed it. But woe to the one through whom they come. The person that just says, dude, relax, it's okay, it's not that big of a deal. You're you're getting a little bit too serious about this Christian stuff. And Jesus says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should be cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus took it pretty seriously and that's not that's that's a warning to us too. You know, not only should we not be deceived by people's hollow advice telling us to ease up on our convictions for goodness sake. We can't be that person. We can't be the person that's like, just relax, it's okay, you can go a little bit further. God's not going to care. He's not like a killjoy. You're fine. He forgives you. You're good. We can't do that. That's bad news. Jesus is not glorified in that. He doesn't like that. So we have to be careful about speaking really loosely about an area where someone has some deep convictions because we decide what to say out of love. That's what constrains us. Love constrains our speech. And we just don't want to lead people astray. All right, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord it says do not become partners with them and partnership involves shared participation in an activity you know i can be friends with anyone It doesn't mean I'm going to do what they do. It doesn't mean I'm going to do everything that they do. Of course not. But I can be friends, and I can be loving, and I can be kind, and I can be respectful. You know, That's what our burden is. But we don't have to participate in everything everyone does. I think this is where we need to be careful as a church. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he never sinned. He would go to anybody's house, but he wouldn't do everything that everyone was doing in that house. When Jesus walked into a room, the conversation changed. It was the power and the effect of his presence. When he sat down at a table, the conversation changed. I guarantee you he's going to have something to say. I was struck. I'm reading very slowly through Luke. And I was struck that Jesus was at someone's house and he addressed, he was at a Pharisee's house and he addressed every single crowd, every single member of the crowd. The Pharisees, the people who were sitting around the table, he said, By the way, you guys who are sitting around the table, don't take the best seat in the house, take the, the least seat, the furthest from the front, and let the host move you up. And by the way, you Pharisees, I mean, he spoke to everybody. When Jesus was in the room, the conversation changed, it just did. We don't become partners with darkness because we are light because of what Jesus has done for us, not because we're special, not because we're more moral. That's just not true. We've been rescued. We're dead people who have been made alive in Christ. That's what it means. And we're living into that new identity that God's given us. And this is also why it's not wise for a follower of Jesus to marry someone who isn't interested in Jesus. Tim Keller talks really well about this. He's like, why would you marry someone if you are a follower of Jesus? That means at the very center of your being, the most important person thing, priority in your life is Jesus Christ. There's not even a close second. You can take everything, you can't have Jesus. As long as I have him, I'm good. And that's how a Christian lives. That's how we manage the suffering of this world. And we have people around us and we have spouses and and kids and family that we adore and love and support us. We have a church that supports us. But at the end of the day, if I have Jesus, I'm good. That's what a Christian lives like. We actually believe that. And so why would you marry someone who the most important person in your life they yawn at. Who are you going to talk to? I mean, I want to talk about, about Jesus all the time. There is nothing more interesting to me than him. There is nothing more beautiful to me than him. Why would I want to marry someone that he's not important to them? Now, we're, we all are in different stages, and Kara and I have both been in different stages of Jesus being more important to one than the other, and that's just natural, and that happens um, but at the same time, if you're not pursuing Christ, what are we here for? <laughs> Why are, what are we talking about? Like I said at the beginning, are we talking about the Browns? That's going to get really uninteresting really fast. I want to talk about Jesus. Let's go there. We're not partners with the darkness because we don't have a lot in common with them. We love them, and our desire for them is to know Christ like we know Christ. All of life is a mission, friends. All of it. And that's why deep community can only really be found in the context of a network of relationships in which people are wholeheartedly going after Jesus together. And that's what we're trying to do with the hospitality nights and with the um, discipleship pods that are coming up. We don't make decisions based on what will feel best in the moment, which is how you make decisions in the darkness, spiritually speaking. We make decisions based on what will please the most important person in our life, and that's Jesus. So, verse 10 tells us, it goes there, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, because that's the goal of everything we do. Before I say a sentence, is this pleasing to the Lord? I'm not there. This is where we need to be headed, though. Before I make a decision, is this pleasing to the Lord? I think one of the things that God is doing in my life is showing me how infrequently I do that. And sometimes I just, I let myself make decisions and take actions and say things without pausing and just say, okay, Jesus, anytime I don't make a decision, I don't say something out of being centered in Christ, it does violence to myself and other people. And I don't want to do that. Help me to fill me with your grace. What does it look like to be centered in you? What does it look like to make a decision that will glorify you right now, right here in this moment? And then as it becomes clear, act all of life is a prayer. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. And he meant it. All of life is a conversation. Will this glorify you, God? That's, we'll never get there perfectly, but it's something that we should be interested in if Jesus is important to us, moving in that direction. Verse, let's see. Let's go to verse 11 through 14. Actually, I see in my notes there's a cool story. <laughs> I want to I talk about this because this actually gives a really good... Um, it gives a, it's a good example of someone who did something well and not wanting to participate in, in the darkness, but really actually exemplify and glorify God with a very practical decision. This one I was in Minneapolis and we were at this training for uh, ministry and I was with a group of people and we had a lunch break, so we went to the Mall of America at the time, which is like the largest mall in the country. And there, for some reason, a lot of stuff was closed. I forget if it was a holiday, but there was one place that was open and we were starving, but this particular place was a place that kind of, um, it 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 put, I'm trying to, I got to figure out how to say this, um, it put women on display in a way that was kind of derogatory. And it wasn't like super, super bad, but it was like, eh, it's bad enough. And they had great wings, like we were talking about, it's like, I mean, it's like, I don't, I'm not sure what to do exactly here. And it's a group of ministry people, right? We're talking about what should we do here? I mean, there's nowhere else open. We're starving. We're not going to eat lunch. And we have some women with us who are in the training, and it's just an awkward moment. And they were just like, we're fine with it. If you guys, we want to go in there. We know you're, it's fine. But one of us, one of the guys spoke up and said, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to sit this one out. I don't, I can't. I know me. I know my weakness. I can't go in there. And we're like, right on. Yeah, we're not going to eat. And one of the girls who had been exploited in a very, very painful way in her past was like, it hit her. She felt safe. She felt loved. She felt cared for in ways that she never would have if we would have went in there. It was beautiful Beautiful picture of making a decision both out of glorifying God and also loving the people around you. Verses 11 through 14, let's bring it home. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the Old Testament, the law was a source of conviction. Paul said, I didn't even know I was sinning until I saw that there, you know, until I realized that there is a law against this. God made a moral law against this. And now I realize I do it all the time. The law was meant to show you your sinfulness and your need for God. In the New Testament, that's what believers do. And we don't do it by condemning and speaking and carrying signs and telling people. We do it by the life, the quality, the moral beauty of the life that we live. We ought to be the most gracious, kind, gentle, loving, patient. That sounds like fruit of the Spirit. People that anybody in your neighborhood knows who aren't in Christ. Because their sins will be exposed through your humility and through your kindness. That's how it works. That's what this means. And the little refrain at the end, nobody knows exactly where it comes from. It sounds like Isaiah 51, 17, but nobody knows exactly where it comes from. It's probably a hymn that the early church used to sing, but there's there's nothing that we've ever found that tells us, oh, there it is. But it's the idea that we are to wake up and rise from the dead and go out into the light. And let Christ shine on us. And as he shines us on us, we become light. Rick Rubin, who is a music producer and kind of a talent whisperer for a lot of musicians, he co-founded Def Jam Records. And he has this, he has this reputation of taking a musician who's just kind of going through the motions in the industry and making music that people that'll sell. And he he kind of has a reputation of getting them to a place of writing from their authentic voice, which is a really hard place to write from. And they just blow up then. He's he's an interesting cat. (laughs) And for a long time, he was extremely unhealthy. He lived what they call a night lifestyle. His, the days were backwards. He would sleep all day and then he would get up as the sun was setting. Then he would get up and he would go to work and work all night. He was um, very unhealthy, had a lot of health complications, part of it because of that. And he ran across a doctor online. He found this doctor and he started to reach out to him and ask advice. He was reading everything he said. What he, what the doctor was saying, it just seemed very natural. And he had some great results with people who were changing their, their life because of the advice that they were taking from this doctor. So he reached out to this doctor and he said, "Hey, um, I, I really need your help. I don't care how much it costs. What do I need to do to like have you personally kind of mentor me in these things?" And the doctor said, "Well, actually, I quit medicine, and I'm trying to get into the. You know, I'm, I'm writing music." And Rick's like, I can help. I know something about that. The doctor ended up going and living with Rick Rubin. You know what the first thing he had him do? He said, every morning when you wake, or evening right now, when you wake up, go out in the sun for 20 minutes. And just like wear a swimsuit or something. Just get as much sun on you as you can for 20 minutes. So Rick Rubin did that the first day, and he's like, it's like 6 p.m., And he's just like, oh, the sun is so bright, this is killing my eyes, I hate this, I hate living in this, this this light is just too much, I hate this, I feel exposed, it's just, feels gross. But he did that every single day, first thing he did when he woke up, and pretty soon he started getting up a little bit earlier, and then he started actually enjoying and not being annoyed by the sunshine. And then he started actually loving the sunshine, loving the light, and wanting to get out of bed earlier and earlier. And before he knew it, he was getting up with the sun. And he started making different decisions, uh, lost a ton of weight, started eating better, started doing all sorts of things that was, was helping his physical health. And it started with just this one little thing of going out in the sun first thing for 20 minutes every day. And he kind of became an evangelist for it. For people who are stuck in these old sleep patterns that don't like being outside, that just want to be inside all day, he kind of became an evangelist for, get out in the light. There's so much more to live for. Like, I know we're all looking slack-jawed at these glowing little screens, but there's a whole world out Get out in the light. And that is a beautiful metaphor of what we have to offer the world in Christ. There's a world that is desperately searching for meaning in the dark. And we bring brightness to the darkness because we are people who live in the light, whose lives have been changed by the light, and so we don't go to our friends who are living in darkness and be like, it's okay. Yeah, just keep doing it. You know what? Actually, I'll, I'll come join you in the darkness. I'll do that with you. I'll just, I'll, I'll be miserable with you. Um, we say there is a better way. And there is a better God. There's a better king. There's a better father. And once you learn to live in the light of who he is, you actually become light for others. That's how we relate to a world who is desperately seeking for meaning in the darkness. There is none there. They're all dead ends. Every trail is a dead end. We know the way home. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to even have an appetite for, or a desire for living in the light. And so the, the parts of our lives that might, we might still be holding on to darkness, I pray that you would give us the moral courage and conviction to bring it to light to be healed and to be changed and to be restored, to become new in that particular area. And for our friends and our loved ones, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow students at school, that you would, you would help us to have eyes that are open to see where they're at spiritually and to invite them into a better way. To share with them that there's a better king there's a better horizon, there's a better world. That living in the light and becoming light itself because of a relationship with Christ brings so much more weight and meaning and beauty to our own lives and to the people we love and to the world around us than anything we could possibly find in the darkness. And I pray that you would help us by making this concrete so it doesn't just stay at some philosophical idea level, but that each of us, by your Spirit, would be shown how we can better walk in the light and better glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at SouthsideWorster.com.